very much, Daniel. Uh, it's always nice to be welcomed by, by one of one's former students. Uh, former students have many uses, I have to say, of which this is only one. Uh, in fact, I became a practicing international lawyer uh, indeed because of one of my former students. That, that was, that was one, one good way to get business. Uh, but I think I will be very old indeed before you get to the point of being able to retain counsel for any purpose. Anyway, it's also very nice to be back in Oxford. I was, a, um, I was an undergraduate here many, many years ago. I'm the, I'm a postgraduate. I have to say, when I was here, there were 10,000 young men and about 1,200 young women. Um, it's obviously the gender balance has radically changed since those days. Um, it has no doubt changed in a variety of other ways, but this room remains very much the same. I can remember coming to seminars here many, many years ago. Uh, so I'm going to talk about soft law, but I'm going to do it in the specific context of UN use of soft law. The paper I'm giving is one that was originally written for a book uh, which is being edited by... Um, Simon Chesterman and Santiago Villapando, um, and which will be published by Oxford University Press later this year. It's a book on human treaty making, but they wisely thought they also needed a chapter on soft law. Um, and what they said was I should look at the UN's practice to see if I could draw any conclusions about uh, the choice between soft law and treaty as an instrument of lawmaking. So that's the context from which the paper addresses the subject. And I'm going to limit myself to that context. If you're interested in some of the wider aspects, then um, I also have a chapter on the subject of soft law in Malcolm Evans' textbook. And in fact, there's a new edition of that coming out later this year as well. And the chapter in that I did significantly rewrite. So if you want to pursue any of these points, you can certainly do that later in the year uh, when they will be published. Um, and if any... Well, I hope some of you will have some questions, actually, at the end, because there are some interesting theoretical questions here. It's fair to say that this is, at some level, a rather contentious subject, although I've never understood why myself, so we shall see. Um, treaties, rather obviously, in today's international law world, are not only a source of obligations between the parties. Many of the more important multilateral treaties have become lawmaking instruments, codifying existing law, creating new law, establishing widely accepted norms and principles um, applicable to all or a large majority of states. Um, but there have been other developments since 1945 which have supplemented or to some extent replaced lawmaking through multilateral treaties. At one end of the spectrum, we have a number, a small number of examples of the UN Security Council engaging what is very definitely lawmaking, the two resolutions it passed um, after, immediately after 9-11. Um, I've forgotten the precise numbers here. Uh, yes, 1373 and 1540. They'll get my footnotes. Uh, those are undoubtedly examples of the Security Council using its Chapter 7 powers uh, to make rules of international law binding on all states. Uh, and there's obviously no treaty, well, there's only an indirect treaty basis there via the UN Charter itself. But at the other end of the spectrum, and I think it's much more important because it's much more frequently used by, uh, by rather more international organisations, we do have the example of soft law. So what I'm 
going to do first is to look at the political considerations that may encourage states, or perhaps the policy considerations that may encourage states to use soft law rather than hard law. Um, and then secondly, I'm going to look at the legal consequences of that decision, what legal effect can we ascribe to soft law instruments, and as you'll see that varies, it depends on the instrument. And then finally, in the third section, I'm going to look at the purposes for which we might use soft law, the specific fields uh, in which soft law has been used by the UN and its specialised agencies. So, choosing between a treaty on the one hand, a multilateral treaty on the one hand, and soft law on the other hand. What are the considerations? What are the reasons that underlie that choice? Uh, the literature identifies essentially four reasons why soft law instruments represent an alternative uh, to lawmaking by treaty. First, it may be easier to reach agreement when the form is non-binding. Um, it enables states to take on commitments they otherwise would be reluctant to take on in treaty form, uh, or perhaps to do so in a detailed way that they would be reluctant at that point to do in treaty form. So in this context, soft law has been a useful starting point for developing international law in relatively new fields. And human rights and international environmental law would be two obvious examples, and I'll come back to some of that shortly. Secondly, soft law instruments uh, are easier to supplement, amend, or re replace than treaties, uh, since all that's required is the adoption of a new resolution by the relevant institution. There's no process of ratification, etc., etc. The important point is that soft law is often relied on to provide uh, the detailed technical rules and standards uh, required to implement international regulatory regimes. That's particularly true in international environmental law. Because they are often based on expert advice and may need to change frequently as the science changes or the policy changes, um, there's little point putting these, these rules and standards into the text of the treaty. Soft law provides a much simpler and more efficient way of adopting and changing the rules. Thirdly, it may be easier for some states to adhere to non-binding instruments because they can avoid the domestic treaty ratification process and perhaps escape democratic accountability for the policy to which they've agreed. Some of these factors often motivate the United States, although in the end it was able to sign up to the Paris Agreement as a binding treaty, but that wasn't always clear uh, during the negotiations. Uh, so in this context, the benefits of soft law are essentially domestic and constitutional in character. And then finally, um, soft law instruments may provide more immediate evidence of international consensus on an agreed text than a treaty uh, whose impact is qualified by reservations and the need to wait for ratification and entry into force. Codification of the law of state responsibility in the form of a General Assembly resolution uh, reflects that particular point, and I'll come back to that as well. On the other hand, if you can see why states sometimes prefer soft law, there are also arguments why they might prefer treaties on other occasions. Um, a treaty may well be perceived, and is probably rightly perceived, as more authoritative. Uh, that is, for example, one reason why the International Law Commission has generally in the past preferred 
to pursue codification by treaty rather than soft law, although its recent practice perhaps suggests that it's changing in that respect. Um, treaties may indicate a stronger commitment to norms and principles in question. Um, and, a, and above all, I think, a treaty gives each party a credible assurance that its terms will be complied with in good faith and that some remedy exists if they're not. Although that is one of the problems with the Trump administration. Would you believe anything the Trump government says? Is a deal with President Trump's government worth the paper it's written on? I rather doubt it. If I was the president of North Korea, I would probably be behaving exactly the way he's behaving, for precisely the reason that you can't trust a government like President Trump. But there we are. In general, treaties undoubtedly do carry a more credible assurance of compliance. So there are obvious contexts in which really only a treaty will do. A very obvious one would be the rewriting of the law of the sea. Uh, really, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1982 had to be in that form. A soft law instrument would not have done. Uh, and the same is true for some of the subsequent instruments like the UN Fish Docks Agreement. That said, even for new lawmaking, non-binding instruments can be useful if they generate widespread and consistent state practice and or if they provide evidence of opinio juris in support of customary international law. And there are good examples of UN General Assembly resolutions and intergovernmental declarations potentially having that effect in cases like Nicaragua, the Nuclear Weapons Advisory Opinion, and the Western Sahara Advisory Opinion. What all of this suggests to me, uh, what I would suggest to you, is that the non-binding form of a soft law instrument is of relatively limited relevance um, in the context of international lawmaking. Treaties, multilateral treaties, do not generate or codify customary international law because they're of their binding form. They do so because they either influence state practice and provide evidence of opinion of yours uh, for uh, a new or emerging rule, uh, or because they afford good evidence of what the existing law is. You only have to look at the Law of the Sea Convention. It was already generating customary international law in the Malta-Libya case, the exclusive economic zone on the continental shelf, long before it entered into force. UNCLOS didn't enter into force till, if I recall correctly, 1994. Malta-Libya case was 1985. So there's a soft law treaty already generating customary international law. That's really the key point that I'm making about soft law. So what do we mean, moving on to my second point, what do we mean by soft law? Um, from a lawmaking perspective, it's simply a convenient description for a variety of non-binding, normatively worded instruments used in contemporary international relations by states and international organizations. Examples include uh, UN conference declarations, uh, some general assembly resolutions, um, some of the resolutions adopted by subsidiary organs uh, or specialised agencies of the United Nations, uh, and indeed some of the codes of conduct, guidelines and principles adopted by these organs. Now, my proposition is not that any of these non-binding declarations or 
resolutions of the General Assembly or any other self-law instrument are law per se. What I'm suggesting is that if drafted in appropriately normative terms, they may provide evidence of existing law, they may be formative of opinio juris, they may generate consistent state practice. That way, they have a significant relationship to the uh, articulation and elaboration of customary international law. As Christine Schinken pointed out many years ago, widespread acceptance of soft law instruments will tend to legitimise conduct and make the legality of opposing positions harder to sustain. Equally long ago, Ian Brownlee referred in this context to the decisive catalytic effect of a number of General Assembly resolutions and other soft law instruments. Yet again, other soft law instruments like the resolution on state responsibility uh, may codify or assist in the development and application of general international law, or they may be the first step in a negotiating process eventually leading to the conclusion of a multilateral treaty. Some soft law instruments, and this is where my proposition begins uh, to shade into something that may well be law, some soft law instruments may acquire binding legal character as elements of a treaty-based regulatory regime. They may constitute a subsequent agreement between the parties uh, regarding interpretation of the treaty. Under the Vienna Convention, Article 31, as I'm sure you all know, uh, that has to be taken into account in interpreting and applying an international agreement. Uh, it's even possible for states to adopt soft law general principles with the intention that international institutions, courts, and states should apply them when relevant. Uh, there are important examples in the Rio Declaration on Environmental Development and in the UN Declaration on Human Rights, and I'll, I'll come back to those. Um, so the, the recognition that non-binding soft law instruments may have legally significant effects does not entail rewriting the law of treaties, or expanding the sources of international law, nor does it require us to engage in what one otherwise critical scholar has called the deformalization of the ascertainment of international rules. I don't think that uh, my exposition of soft law does any of that. Uh, and it does seem to me that to argue that it does is entirely to miss the point. And perhaps to be a little more pointed, Jean d'Arpemont has written a very good book on uh, the formalism and the sources of international law. I think the very first word is the problem. It's very formalistic. Uh, and he's doing what international lawyers and indeed academics should never do. Uh, he is trying to make reality conform to a theory of the lawmaking of the legal act, which is a phrase that he uses. Well, I'm afraid um, if I were anything other than a lawyer, I'd probably be a scientist. And, my view of theory is that it explains reality. If it can't explain reality, then you change the theory. I think Jean wants to change the reality. Well, there we are. Anyway, so that leads me back to the point. I don't think that what soft law is doing, or indeed my explanation of it, is deformalizing anything. Nor does it require a theory of the legal act in order to explain it. Um, but I think the key point is that treaties, soft law, general principles and custom interact and supplement each other. They have to be looked at as a coherent whole. And what matters, I think, here is to understand not the theory of the legal act, 
but to understand that there is an act, there is an interaction between these components, these elements, even when the instrument itself is formally non-binding. Now, having said all of that, that brings me uh, to look at some examples in UN practice and to see for what purposes the UN and its various agencies have used the other topic. But perhaps this might be a convenient moment to ask, at what point do you want me to shut up? <coughs> Would half past be enough? Yes. Right, that, okay. Well, I, I suspect <laughs> I'll get there before that, but you never know. Um, all right. Um, the United Nations has, of course, pioneered the use of soft law, most obviously through the adoption of General Assembly resolutions. And inter alia, some of these interpret and amplify the UN Charter, or they codify and progressively develop international law, or they provide evidence of opinio juris on new norms and principles, or they, or they legitimize state practice. Um, and the examples that I'm going to refer to, I think, illustrate five main uses for soft law in the practice of the United Nations over the past 70 years, perhaps, perhaps longer than that. never very good at mathematics. Um, but I think the first one that I want to talk about is declaratory lawmaking. Uh, there are good examples of soft law instruments which, in effect, declare principles and rules of international law. Um, and this has been particularly important in UN practice uh, for new and developing areas, and the two most obvious ones uh, are the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted in 1948, and the Rio Declaration on Environmental and Development, uh, adopted in 1992. And I think they are probably the two, or perhaps two of the most important uh, um, soft law contributions that the General Assembly has made to the uh, development of international law in this way. So let me look very briefly at the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights, and which actually, funnily enough, remarkably little has been written. Um, but the Universal Declaration was the earliest internationally endorsed statement of what UN member states regarded as human rights in international law. But the chair of the, of the Human Rights Commission at the time, which was Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, said this. Uh, she said, it's, it's not a treaty. It's not an international agreement. It's not and does not purport to be a statement of law or a legal obligation. Okay, so if you take her at face value, it's plainly soft. But is she right that it's not law in any sense? Well, maybe she was right in 1948. However, I think there are three points that can be made, or certainly two, maybe three. First, it does and did in 1948 represent a common understanding by UN member states of the human rights provisions of the UN Charter. So there is an exercise in interpretation and amplification here. Secondly, some of its provisions express general principles of law recognized as sources of international law by Article 38.1c of the statute in the ICJ. Um, quite a lot of human rights law is based on general principles. And the third, but perhaps rather more contested view, is that whatever its initial status, the Universal Declaration has created a customary international law of human rights. 
Well, it's, this might not necessarily be true of the entire declaration, but it is true that some of its provisions have undoubtedly become customary in international law, including freedom from genocide, slavery, and torture. Moreover, re regardless of the status of the Universal Declaration itself, or of, this, or of the rights it sets forth, it has undoubtedly provided the essential negotiating foundation for the UN's two principal human rights treaties, the Covenants on Civil and Political Rights and on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. It may have taken a long time to negotiate those treaties, uh, but there's no doubt that they were always intended to be uh, the ultimate result of the adoption of the Universal Declaration. That said, the Universal Declaration has an independent existence and has been and continues to be on a number of occasions applied by international human rights courts. Since 1948, UN lawmaking in the human rights field has largely followed the same pattern. First, a declaration is adopted, non-binding soft law, then a treaty is negotiated. In some cases, it doesn't take very long to negotiate the treaty. In others, it has taken 30 years, the Convention on the Rights of the Child being uh, the latter example. I could say much the same about a declaration that rather closer to my own special area, the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development. This was negotiated and adopted by consensus at a UN conference in 1992. It remains today uh, the most significant universally endorsed statement of general rights and obligations of states affecting the environment. Uh, the declaration is in part a restatement of existing customary international law on transboundary matters. It's partly an endorsement of new or developing principles of law uh, concerned with protection of the global environment. And it's partly a statement of policies and ideals set out more, more fully in Agenda 21, the program of action that was adopted at the same time. Now, I'm not suggesting the Declaration anymore, uh, the Rio Declaration or uh, the Universal Declaration, uh, are themselves binding law. The Rio Declaration's value uh, is evidential. It tells us in particular what states believe the law to be, already to be in certain cases, or in others what they would like it um, uh, to become, um, and how they want it to develop. Uh, so the Declaration's legal significance can only properly be appreciated in conjunction with an understanding of the pre-existing customary law and the subsequent development of state practice, further treaties, protocols, regulations and judicial decisions. If you look at all of those, the Declaration has clearly had significant impact. Um, many of the principles set out in the Rio Declaration have been referred to by the International Law Commission in support of its codification of uh, the law on transboundary harm. It would appear to be one of the great number of instruments setting out norms of international environmental law to which the ICJ referred to in Gabchukovo and on which the court also relied explicitly in the nuclear weapons and advisory opinion. And those are only some of the examples of the influence of, Rio, uh, of the Rio Declaration on the subsequent making of international law. There are treaties and other instruments uh, which illustrate the point very clearly indeed. My 
second category is an easier and more obvious one, which is the codification and progressive development of international law. Um, again, the resolution on state responsibility is the best example. Uh, the obvious question is, why was the law of state responsibility codified by General Assembly resolution when virtually all the rest of the ILC's previous work, including the law of treaties, for example, um, had been codified using multilateral treaties? There was a norm, there was, as it were, a path-breaking um, decision here when uh, the General Assembly decided to adopt this resolution rather than to go immediately for a treaty conference. And there were, I think, two main reasons. Certainly the literature suggests two main reasons. First, I think part of the thinking was that a treaty would run the risk of securing only a relatively small number of parties, whereas the adoption of a General Assembly resolution uh, would, would almost certainly, or at least that was the intention, get the, secure the consensus support of the whole of the General Assembly. It did, for example, take a very long time for the Vienna Convention on Law Treaties to enter into force. It's only relatively recently that it's actually had more than 120 parties. And it's still far from universal. Uh, but I think much more importantly than that point, um, it was believed, and this is James Crawford's principal argument, um, that referring the draft articles to a diplomatic conference would simply reopen debates on a text which, will, which already rests on some delicate compromises between differing views. Um, so I think the conclusion was that it would be better not to reopen that debate. Uh, it would be better for states simply to in, endorse a consensus in the Commission and then argue about the status of the rules in their dealings with each other and in litigation. That's exactly what has happened. Um, well, I think it's the only example I want to mention as regards codification. It's not a particularly frequent use uh, for soft law, although it's worth saying that in its more recent practice, the International Law Commission has tended to prefer soft law outcomes. But on the other hand, the International Law Commission has been doing things that it hadn't previously done, like providing guidance on the law of treaties, um, or its work on customary international law, or the fragmentation of international law. None of those is really suitable for treaty articles anyway, so you can see why they ended up with soft law instruments there. I think that's easy to understand. But the state responsibility example is a good one, because there's no doubt if you read the articles on state responsibility, they look like a treaty. They're drafted as if they were going to go into a treaty. So there clearly was an important decision there. The third example is also, I think, fairly obvious, that soft law instruments may well be the starting point uh, for facilitating the negotiation of treaties. And there are some very good examples here that are well known. Again, Universal Declaration of Human Rights was always intended to result in treaties. There are examples of General Assembly resolutions that, again, uh, did ultimately lead to the negotiation of treaties on outer space, on the deep seabed, climate change. Uh, the phenomenon is not limited to the General Assembly. If you look at the IEA, its guidelines um, on the fundamentals of nuclear safety uh, were eventually, eventually formed the basis for uh, um, uh, the Convention on Nuclear Safety, its earlier guidelines, 
um, on early notification of nuclear accident form the basis of a treaty on that. Uh, if you look at, at the UN Environment Programme, its 1987 goals and principles on environmental impact assessment uh, were subsequently incorporated in a variety of treaties, most, most notably the 1991 uh, Convention on Environmental Impact Assessment in a transboundary context. I think I need to say a little more about that. That's all fairly obvious. And then fourthly, I think this is perhaps the most important point of all, and it's where a lot of the theorists really do miss the point completely. Um, and that's interpretation of treaties, which then leads on to my fifth point about, um, about rulemaking uh, through soft law. Um, I think one of the key advantages of soft law, as I said at the beginning, is that provided the parties are in agreement, a soft law resolution, recommendation or decision can be, uh, perform the function of interpreting and amplifying a more general treaty text without the need for formal amendment of the treaty. So it's a simpler and more efficient way to make subsidiary rules. Um, the International Law Commission commentary to what's now Article 313A of the Vienna Convention, the one on subsequent agreements, notes that an agreement as to the interpretation of the provision reached after the conclusion of the treaty represents an authentic interpretation by the parties which must be read into the treaty for the purposes of its interpretation. Notice that wording. This is not non-binding. It's not an option. Must be read into the treaty for the purposes of its interpretation. You're talking law here, you're not talking non-law. Um, but the agreement that you're reading into the treaty does not itself have to be binding. A soft law instrument can perform that function uh, as adequately, and as efficiently and effectively uh, as a protocol uh, or an annex uh, or an amendment to a treaty. And the ICJ has acknowledged that point um, in a number of cases, but most obviously um, in the Kasaliki Sududu Island case, but also in Whaling case and in various other places. So, provided they're adopted by consensus, I think that's an important proviso, um, soft law instruments may constitute either a subsequent agreement on interpretation or subsequent practice pursuant to Article 313A and B, respectively. And the International Law Commission has been looking at the first of those topics in its more recent work. That's why environmental soft law is quite often used to give hard content to the open textured terms of environmental treaties. And again, to come back to UNEP's goals and principles on environmental impact assessment, um, they have provided guidance for international courts and governments faced with the task of interpreting and applying very general treaty provisions which mandate uh, the use of environmental impact assessment, but which neither specify the content of an EIA or the process by which one is to be conducted. And this is one of the key issues in the Putman's case, the first case that I ever argued. Uh, there, Argentina and Uruguay both referred the court to the 1992 Rio Declaration on Environment and Development, to UNEP's goals and principles on environmental impact assessment, and to the International Law Commission's 2002 draft articles on prevention of transboundary harm. And the court noted in particular that the UNEP goals and principles 
constitute guidance issued by, quote, an international technical body and therefore have to be taken account into account under the specific wording of Article 41 of the Statute of the Uruguay. But I think they would have come to that view anyway, frankly. Um, I might also add that, in fact, one of the soft law instruments that I can remember referring the court to was the UNEP guidelines on environmental impact assessment for, uh, yeah, what was it for? It was for something incredibly trivial and boring and technical, but um, I've now forgotten it. But anyway, there was I standing up, you know, doing what Jean d'Apremont seems to think is a complete nonsense citing all this soft law at the court, and lo and behold, do they make any use of it? Yes, absolutely, they do. It clearly influence the outcome, particularly the UNEP goals and principles. On the other side, on the Argentine side, Argentina was making a great play of the ESPU convention, uh, sorry, not the ESPU convention, um, yeah, the ESPU convention on uh, environmental impact assessment in a transboundary context, which is, of course, a binding treaty. But Argentina's maybe of Europe, but it's not in Europe, it's in South America. Uh, and it isn't a party to the EIA convention. Whereas we thought on our side that the UNEP goals and principles were rather more appropriate, slightly less detailed, and they supported our view of what the law was, particularly on the citing of um, um, plants like the pulp mill. And indeed, sure enough, the court referred specifically to the UNEP non-binding goals and principles. Uh, it made use of them. It did refer to the EIA convention, but it dismissed it because it was European. It was obviously not relevant in Latin America. Um, as I said earlier, the advantages of doing things this way are that the rules and standards can easily be changed. The, the process is flexible. Um, and I think that leads on to the more general point that there are quite a lot of treaties which are deliberately expressed in broad or general terms. Terms often so broad or general that you might suggest that they, aren't, they really aren't hard law themselves in any meaningful sense. And they need to be fleshed out in detail through additional protocols, annexes, um, implementing agreements, or soft law instruments. And all that we're doing here is using soft law instruments as one of a number of potential tools for performing precisely that function. Now, it's interesting, again, picking up some of the literature. Uh, the author will remain nameless, although I don't actually know the person anyway. But um, I can be blunter if I don't name the person. There is there's one article, although it's one of a number, that suggests that Soft law uh, is, um, consists of vague rules and standards. It's the vagueness they emphasize. Well, I have to say, again, this is clearly written by somebody who's never read any soft law and obviously doesn't know any international law. You know, just be careful what you write. It can say a lot about you. If you haven't read the case, it's going to show. Those of you who are students know <laughs> that point. Uh, after... 40 years as an academic, as I'm sure Daniel will confirm my unerring ability to identify a student who hadn't read the key case. It's very embarrassing, isn't it, Daniel? Yes, I think it was maybe you. <laughs> okay, you can tell this author has never read any soft law, because if you think through the logic of my point, 
Take the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which I'm sure you all go to bed with at night. Um, I was a student, it was about the only thing you could go to bed with. Um, it's very, I mean, there's nothing in it. There, there's almost no obligation. There are some principles, rather vague in general, like the precautionary principle. Um, there are some structures for negotiating detailed rules. But if you want an example of a treaty which is vague in general, then try the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Try the Long Range Transboundary Air Pollution Convention. Try the Ozone Convention. Try any framework agreement. Try chunks of the Law of the Sea Convention, including Part 12 on the Marine Environment. You're not going to get detailed rules here, because what these are, in effect, are, as it were, they're the starting point for a regulatory system. Those of you who have studied English law will recognize immediately that we're in uh, the realms of a statute which empowers the minister to make regulations, or indeed those of you who do EU law will realize we're immediately in the realms of uh, a treaty provision that empowers the commission to make regulations. Um, and what you then need to do is have amplify and fill out the details in, a, in, in some other way. Now, you can do it in a variety of ways. Uh, you may, for example, have annexes that can be easily amended by a new objections procedure. Uh, you can do it by adding a protocol or an implementing agreement, or you can do it through soft law. But the key point here is that if you look, for example, at the International Atomic Energy Agency's soft law, the binding rules, but very general, are in the Nuclear Safety Convention. The detailed and specific rules, non-binding, are in the form of IEA codes of conduct and guidelines. Now, that completely undermines those theorists who will waffle on about the vagueness of soft law. They clearly do not know what they're talking about, because it's exactly the opposite. It's the vagueness of waffly treaties that's the problem here, and it's the soft law which is giving detail and content to these treaties. And if you uh, are looking at Nuclear law, that's exactly the point of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Try reading the Nuclear Safety Convention. It requires states to take the appropriate measures to do a whole host of things. It nowhere defines what the appropriate measures are. Where are you going to find them? In IAEA soft law. Look at FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization. Um, it has used a number of binding treaties and soft law to to amplify uh, various aspects of the law on fisheries. Um, FAO itself has a series of non-binding action plans on illegal and unreported, unregulated fishing and a variety of other things. The General Assembly has passed a number of resolutions, non-binding, on drift net fishing, on bottom trawling, and a variety of other aspects of fisheries. All of these are non-binding. But if you then read Article 10 of the UN Fish Stocks Agreement, which is a binding treaty, you see that they are given legal effect by Article 10. In much the same way as the Law of the Sea Convention in Part 12 talks about generally accepted international rules and standards for the control of marine pollution from ships and from dumping. Now, some of those rules are binding IMO treaty annexes from the Marpol Convention, but some of them are IMO uh, decisions and recommendations. So again, soft law. And the Law of the Sea Convention requires or empowers states to apply generally accepted international rules and standards. So whether you look at these 
uh, non-binding fisheries instruments in the context of the fish stocks agreement, or whether you look at non-binding instruments on marine pollution in the context of the Law of the Sea Convention. Again, you've got good examples of very general treaty provisions that are then implemented, uh, amplified, and filled out using non-binding detailed soft law regulations that can also then be changed quite easily and efficiently. And I think all that these examples seem to me to point to the conclusion that the non-binding force of UN soft law can be overstated. In many of the above examples, states are not free to disregard applicable soft law, even if they're not incorporated directly in the treaty. They may well interpret, um, or they may well constitute an agreed understanding of the terms of the treaty, uh, or reflect the subsequent practice of its parties. Um, so the instruments themselves may not be legally binding. Their interaction with related treaties can transform their legal status into something more than that. And that, I think, broadens out into my, uh, really, my conclusions. Um, as I said at the beginning, the functions of soft law in UN practice uh, are diverse, but I would suggest that it's inconceivable that modern uh, treaty regimes or international organisations such as the UN could function without resort to soft law in various contexts. And I think that's the most fundamental problem with the kind of approach taken by Jean d'Apremont and Jan Clavers, who's another of these theorists. Uh, I think secondly, uh, looking at UN practice, I would suggest there are no particular areas of international law where soft law is uniquely appropriate or uniquely inappropriate. I think UN practice demonstrates uh, that soft law has perhaps been more significant in the evolution of newer areas of international law, like human rights, outer space, environmental law, and rather less important in international economic law, international criminal law, the law of the sea, which perhaps uh, were well established. But you can find examples of them in all of these areas. Um, I think thirdly, obviously one of the main advantages of um, soft law is the ease of adoption and amendment, uh, and the potentially more inclusive than treaties. Um, and I think finally, and I think there's an important point, choosing soft law over treaties does not diminish the need for negotiation or consensus. Soft law instruments are negotiated with the same care and attention and diplomatic skill or lack of it as treaties. Um, and securing consensus is probably more important than it is in treaties. As a soft law instrument that isn't backed by a consensus of states is probably going to have less impact, if any at all. A treaty that has majority support may have significant impact, uh, but a soft law instrument that only has majority support probably won't. Think Texaco Libya. Um, the majority support of the General Assembly for changing the law on expropriation didn't change the law on expropriation. Um, so I think in this context, consensus is even more important than it is in uh, treaty making. But soft law is not the paradox portrayed in some of the literature. It's the product of an increasingly sophisticated legal system of people who do know what they're doing and do know what they're talking about. Uh, and it needs to be understood 
not simply dismissed as something which couldn't possibly be law because it doesn't conform to the theory of the legal act, whatever that might be. Thank you. As I say on the BBC, if you have been, thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.